welcome to Humanly Possible. I am so excited for this conversation. Uh, we met through a uh, mutual friend, acquaintance, and uh, since we've been connected, I have just been so inspired by your work. Um, you know, we just talked a little while ago, and, and you kind of talked about um, storytelling being at the center of your purpose and. Um, so I'm going to hand it off to you to provide an introduction because you can do that best. So tell us who you are, uh, what you stand for, and what makes you human. Mm. So first of all, thank you, Angela, for having me on your show. It's, um, I watch your work. I watch your movement. And, you know, I get a chance to do uh, some of these from time to time. And there's, there are definitely some, sometimes people that I encounter that I'm really, really, really eager to be in conversation with because I know I'm going to do some learning. And that learning will be applicable to my work. So what is my work and who do I do in the world? You know, I always lead with um, what my first love was and always will be is I'm a writer. I'm a, I'm a writer who was, uh, you know, uh, as a young person, did not see himself as that. Um, it was only in college where I had a professor who pulled me aside and said that you have an ability to, to, convey, um, to convey thoughts through words that maybe you want to explore more. And it was a shocking experience for me because prior to that, I'd never had a teacher really or an educator really identify me as, a, as a, having a specific skill that I should try to honor. Um, so writing for me in my early 20s in particular became um, not just a passion, but became a calling. And so I've written a few books. Um, most recently, I wrote a book that came out this past summer called Letters to My White Male Friends. Um, and I'm also, uh, um, uh, I work at the intersection of equity, inclusion, diversity, and strategy. You know, I work with a variety of companies as a coach, as a consultant. I do a lot of facilitation. Facilitation is like a core component of how I, how I believe I am called to show up in the world. And I never want to leave that or lose that, even as I do strategy work, even as I do a variety of other things that allow me to kind of sit in other spaces. I'm always called back to what it means to be in a space with people who are expressing something that is deep and personal and vulnerable and being able to be a witness to them. So what makes me human to your question is, as I, I would say, it's that it's, it's to be a witness, you know, it's to be a witness to whatever people are experiencing and recognize that that is the truth of their, their experience at that moment in time, to not turn away from it, to not try to, um, under, you know, to, to, to minimize it, to uplift it, to name it, to center it. Um, and it's to, to, be, to be incredibly present with people um, is a human component, human part of, it's, a, it's something for me to be human because as we all know, it is a, very difficult to do that now, increasingly difficult to be present for people because we just have so much stuff that we got calling our attention in all these different ways. I genuinely, even before this interaction today, before this podcast, I have a mantra that I say to myself. It's, you know, be where you are, be who you're with, be doing what you're doing. That's my mantra, where you are, who you're with, doing what you're doing. That allows me to move from, I'm going to be in maybe this call, this hour, the next hour. But if I'm always saying that, center yourself, be present with who you are with, be doing what you're doing, you know, and, and really those, those elements, that allows me to kind of be in the world that we all have to be in right now, which calls us to be in every, at every hour, every half hour, whatever, in a different space, different group, whether it's family, friends, work, whatever else have you. And to not feel like there's a lag there or some part of me missing. I will pause there because you asked a very simple question and I gave you a long-winded answer. But thank no, you so much for that having was, me. Well, that, that's, we're so uh, 
grateful to have you. I, I feel like um, I'm with a celebrity because I've got, I've got um, <laughs> for, for the funny. listeners here, I'm, I'm putting up your book, Letters to My White Male Friends, and uh, I'm just so grateful to be in your space. Mm-hmm. And I think part of humanity, and, I, and it just gets to, I think, this book in particular, um, is empathy. And, you know, uh, I think a lot of your book and I started your book is around um, creating stories to create empathy for other people about experiences and getting yourself outside of yourself to understand what uh, an experience is like. And Mm -hmm. in particular, um, you know, your book is really centered around the black experience at work. Mm-hmm. Much more complex than that, mm-hmm. <laughs> but if I could yeah. summarize it and you know inserting identity identity into the conversation around the work- workplace is such a hot topic, as you know. Um, I mean, it's not a hot topic for us because we've been working on culture and DEI and for yeah. a long time. <laughs> right. right. But uh, in society right now, it's a hot topic. So tell us a little bit about the book. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a uh, half memoir, half. Um, I would say storytelling and creating awareness, but tell us a little bit more about the book. Yeah. Um, so it is, um, it is a book that is partly memoir, um, and it is a partly, uh, call to action. So it's in many ways it, it uses, I try to use some of my, um, formative experiences and particularly formative experiences in, within white, predominantly white spaces, education spaces, workspaces, um, as a way to reflect on my journey specifically for the purposes of allowing my reader to do their own reflective work. You know, one of the things that you talk about the word empathy is that I think um, what I try to drive home is that our worldviews are in many ways, perhaps even exclusively, a reflection of both what we've been through and how we've thought about those experiences that we've had. And the extent to which we're able to be reflective on the things that we've gone through would allow allows us to both sort of recognize our own gaps and then also recognize and honor um, other people's uh, narratives and, and experiences. So for specifically why I wrote a book that was centering, you know, white men at a time when many people are decentering white men um, was because I think it's important for us to to kind of go where we're called and where we can be useful. Right. So for me, as a black man who's had um, experiences that have allowed for him to, uh, you know, you know, I've I've been I've been afforded opportunities, you know, for better and for worse, to be quite honest, to be in a lot of spaces and privileged spaces, you know, a lot of privileged rooms. You know, I was just remarking to my wife yesterday, I'm I'm, I'm working in the podcast world now a bit and I'm part of a a fledgling podcast company that's and we're doing a lot of calls with um, large companies, large entities around projects. And I am always the only black person on these calls. And I'm really like, so this is yet another world that I'm sort of navigating. And at least at the level of like the sort of the companies that are defining and sort of pushing the largest sort of, you know, the sort of the, 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 our attention and sort of the, they, they are predominantly white spaces right now. And what I find is that I've, through my experience, been able to develop both genuine de- and genuine rapport and relationship with, with a lot of white men um, because I am a, a man. I am a heterosexual man. I am a man who, you know, who um, grew up playing sports. I'm a man. So a lot of the things that allow me to be uh, to sort of have had bridging experiences, it 
felt I felt called to use those in a way sort of layered on with my experience in the DEI space, DEI, B space, Jedi space to, to sort of help some folks who were hungry for a deeper understanding of what's going on and how they could both be either be allies or just not get in the way, you know? Um, so, um, that was my offering. You know, everybody, I think people have a different inner there. Some folks are, are their work is in other places right now. Right now, I feel like some of my important work is in the space of um, if it is the case that we're trying to build a new future, and if it is the case that we want to build a future that includes everybody, and and and, and we want to also, and that means even that means even white men, right? Like it's not like we just want to like all right, we're done with y'all, we out. That, that's not a, that's not what I'm. That's my that's not my project, right? I respect if somebody else has a project that is about something else, but my project is. I don't ever want to be excluded and therefore I'm not going to do that to somebody else, but I am going to hold you accountable and I'm going to tell you some hard truths and I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to, to really do some work with me. So my book, my book, I always say to people, it is not designed to be a passive experience. If you are just turning the pages and feeling bad for me, then, then you have missed the point. I did not write this book for you to feel bad for Dax. Dax is doing fine. I wrote this book because I have arrived at some conclusions about my life that I think would allow you to do some of your own work to arrive at your own conclusions. Because if it is the case that you're looking around the world and you don't understand what's going on, that probably means you've missed some things, right? Or you've not really taken them in or you've not really sat deep with them. So I want you to recognize that that is a harm, right? To have missed those things or to not be able to be in touch with those things, to feel alienated from or distant from, that is a harm. Because you are, you are not able to really deeply connect with parts of your own human self, right? And that leads to judgment. That leads to want to desire to, to shut down conversation or to shut down people. But the open, the sort of, but to, to challenge people to be open is to, is to push them to do some of their own reflective work. And that's what my book is, is ultimately aimed at, at doing in many ways. Yeah, it's such powerful powerful work and um so needed uh and and it's it's not easy i can assume because i i work in, in a similar space <laughs> yeah where you know you know. You're, <laughs> you know you're trying to fill the gaps of experience yeah. and yeah. so what has the, i'm just curious what has been the response because you mentioned earlier that you know you've you've been in these privileged spaces and you've yeah. it sounds like um you've been able to approach this matter and this topic in a way that is hitting um, and impacting. So what has the response been and how have you work, worked on working on the work? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, you know, what's been, um, as a writer, there's, you're always grateful to see your book in the world. You know, I go into bookstores and I see it, you know, I can, people send me pictures all over the country in Canada, all around people send me pictures. Yo, they write to me like people. I get emails from folks who've read it and encountered it. And it's not just white men. I get letters and emails from all sorts of folks who will say, listen, I didn't know this book was for me, but I read it and I found something in it that was really valuable and thanking me for doing that. Um, so there's just a lot of there's a lot of um, humility. I mean, I think every writer wants to make their book, see their book hit the bestseller list, has hit the bestseller list right away. Like that's the that's the holy grail, at least as mass culture. As popular culture defines it for us, but I think we need to define our own goals when we produce something for the world. And for me, it is a a goal to have put it out there, to complete it, to put it out there, to be able to talk about it, to be in a space to have folks who have it in their hands is a real whole, real thing. But generally, I think that you know, I am I am surprised by um, the number of folks who have 
been willing to receive the messages and receive hard messages and receive hard truths with openness. It's both, it's been encouraging. And I know that there are a lot of folks who just don't want it, who have no interest and don't want to pick it up and don't want to reflect on it and are probably pissed off that I even have the notion, have the temerity to put something like this out in the world. Meaning like, I think, and that some of that is connected to um, some people's beliefs that racism isn't a real thing. Um, some people's beliefs that um, any, any, any attempt to um, organize a, a book around a, a, an identity such as white men is a, is a fool's errand because there is no shared identity that white men have in America. And I challenge that, you know, I challenge that even across uh, economic spectrums. I think that there's a, there's shared features that, you know, I think it's hard for all of us to recognize that there are shared elements that we hold because we have certain identities. Like I, I, there's a reason why, and I write about this, there's a reason why if I go down south and I walk through a neighborhood in the south, in the deep south, black men still give me a nod, right? Right, there's a reason why, right? Because there's something shared and they know it and we see it. And I think that white folks are more are more reluctant to acknowledge that there are some shared features of of the identity of whiteness in America that than people than people who have experienced oppression and repression partly because for us it's about survival it's about like I need to know that you know right the nod is about we we hear right that's what the nod is um, and if something goes down we got each other right that's what the nod is right um, and so just for 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 folks who for whom they've never had to have that or to identify themselves or think of themselves in, their, in that way, I think that's harder. And so there is resistance sometimes to books like to a book like this. And I, w I knew that going out. I knew that there would be a lot of folks who would just not want to talk about it. I knew that a lot of mainstream publications would be like, nah, I don't want to touch it because it's just a topic that is too uncomfortable. It's too close to home. I do think it's too close to home for some people, but, that's but we need that in our conversations, right? Like, yes. We need that. Oh. We need that. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, the, the sectors that we talk about, right? I mm -hmm. mean, there are so many to touch on media, workplace, yeah. uh, education, uh, healthcare. I mean, it, it spans society. And so I, I kind of want to dive into the workplace specifically yeah. because mm -hmm. systemic racism is a term that a lot of people have heard of and probably don't even know what it means, you know, systemic versus systematic, for example. So tell us a little bit about when you talk about systemic racism or the systemic elements of, let's say, you know, white supremacy, for example, and how that has impacted the workplace even today. What are some main elements that uh, are important to know? Yeah. Um I think that we start from a baseline that there is a there are there's a default. There's a default that exists within all work and organizational culture that has been built in many ways on a sort of I call it like a chassis. Like it's all if you think if you're building the car, there's a chassis that exists. And that and therefore that's the foundation upon which a number of things are built and therefore that doesn't get questioned, doesn't get challenged. It's um, identified as the way things go and the way things should be done and the way things should look. Um, and for those, for anyone who, who has, you know, um, been able to in their own lives um, uh, either uh, become aware of that norm and become aware of that default and therefore adjust and comport themselves and therefore meet its expectations and standards, 
then you can be good and you can navigate it. There will probably be, for those of us who identify as other in some way, or some way, shape, or form, some glass ceilings that we're going to have to, that we're going to be, we'll be playing a game of Tetris in some ways, whatever that, you know, that's going to exist. But you at least have an awareness of that because you recognize that this system wasn't necessarily built for my, for me to be successful here, right? Um, and, but for, for, for those who don't know, or who maybe are less aware of those things, those can be, those can operate as invisible barriers. I think the ways to talk about the systemic features of racism and the ways in which they manifest in the workplace is it's most practically understood through sort of the elements of the work environment, right? Um, or the sort of processes that prevail in the work environment. We have processes around, around hiring, around recruitment, around hiring, around um, training and onboarding, around um, promotions, around performance reviews, around a number of things. And if you're not, and, and, that, and that even sort of even lives within strategy, and it lives in like who gets, to, like how we define what strategy is, what ideas. So if you look at all, if you break apart an enterprise and sort of break out the little pieces, you can ask the question around what is, what is the norm here? And then who does that norm serve? And who does it, and perhaps even unintentionally, exclude? And I think the ways in which many of us have become, at least in the last couple of years, those who have become a bit more attuned to the ways in which systemic racism can function and operate, we started, we can now, we're now looking at systems for recruitment and hiring as very salient ways, as sort of entry points, right? So it's everything from what, you know, we're starting to hear this more frequently, what is written into a job description to, you know, what kinds of questions get in, oh, in an interview to where you decide to place your, your, um, um, your, your, uh, your, how do you, where you decide to add, put place advertisements for, for jobs to what kinds of um, universities and colleges you find you would think are going to be the ones that are appropriate for this, for us here, for our culture to fit into who we are, to what we do and how we do things. Um, so there, so so beginning to recognize that those can have features of of they can be they can they can be participants within a systemically racist system because they end up reinforcing opportunities and advantages that were already, be, that began as early as someone's birth, right? So if I'm born into a society and in, in a community wherein my opportunities from the very beginning are less or fewer than those of a counterpart of mine who lives in a different community, already I'm operating from a, narrow, a narrowing field, a narrowing, and that narrowing, that winnowing can continue and continue to a point I'm, I'm excluded, I'm excluded. And that exclusion can happen in many different, many different places. I want to offer like one, I think, very, um, I think, um, very visceral way in which systemic racism is a, as a, it continues to be an operational feature. I, I'm, I'm, I've been working with uh, in an intersection of sports right now. Some of I work with a sports team, an NFL football team, as a matter of fact, is one of my clients. And it's been really interesting um, to learn because it's actually shifted a lot of my thinking. There's a lot of dynamics specifically around gender, which you can imagine in a football organization that prevail. There's dynamics around race. As we saw a couple of days ago, if you follow football at all, the Oakland Raiders head coach just had to lose his, lose his job because of the kinds of communications that he was sharing with people who he believed, I'm sure, were like-minded in another organization. And if you were to probably ask that same person, was he racist, he would deny it, deny it, deny it. But then you read what this man has written. It's like, how, and you're a decision maker. This is highly problematic. And the reason I bring up the NFL here is that what's, what's been revealed in most recent, like the last couple of months, is that there was this, there's this huge lawsuit that is currently moving through the processes within the NFL that's um, 
regarding um, sort of the, the, the benefits to be paid to former NFL players based around whatever, like head injuries that they may have had as a result of playing. So there's baked into the sort of policy and the process of deciding what kind of benefits would be paid to players was this thing called race norming. So race norming suggested, and this is a pseudoscientific theory that was baked into this policy, and this is going to have real material consequences for people's lives, that cognitively white players start at a different place than black players. So therefore we can't, we have to measure the, um, the we're going to measure the diminishment of their cognitive abilities from a different starting point. So right there, you see, they are saying that white players have a different IQ from the very beginning, different cognitive starting point, such that for them to show the kind of requisite diminishment was easier than it would be for a black player, because you're presumably starting from a lower starting point cognitively. So whatever diminishment in your capacities has been revealed or demonstrated would need to be even need to be demonstrably sort of broader or, or sort of more, of more sort of you know, whatever the word might be in order for you to have a legitimate claim. So you can see that there's a baseline that's already baked in to the assumption of an actual policy in 2021 that starts from a place that white people and black people have a different IQ and therefore we're going to measure the benefits that you are going to be able to be able to access based on what that assumption is saying about your 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 IQ. This is unfathomable. When I read this I was like I can't. Now, it's been it's been challenged, it's been overturned, it's now being outrooted, but the mere fact the mere fact that this could be with a straight face written into a a policy that would have material impacts and then people would question whether systemic racism is a real and manifesting thing in our society, I find to be really, really, really problematic. Like, who, who what, 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 what more evidence would you need? So that's a very salient, present, and material example of the way it manifests. But there's a million different ways that we could talk about it. And there's ways in which gender discrimination operates, and there are ways in which ableism operates, and there are ways in which, you know, heteros, hetero, heteronormativity and the expectation, all those things are operationalized in often implicit ways in an organization. And it can feel like it's splitting hairs, but the accumulation of those things, it's the accumulation of these small micro sort of micro missed opportunities, microaggressions, whatever you call them, that over time accumulate to have a cumulative effect. And that's what we're trying to put attention to. It's not the egregious thing every time. It's the small thing. It's the small stuff. Yes. And, and those small things, like you said, compiling on top of each other that are covert and overt, yeah. uh, I think is the, the, the key here, which is and going back to your original comment about acknowledging you know, that you don't know what you don't know. Right, and and, right, and someone right. like like your your white white male friends acknowledging you know what I am on this journey with you and I don't know what I don't know yeah. I am I am I want to learn and I want to unlearn mm-hmm. um, and I oftentimes I have kind of a a mini story about um, you know workplaces and how they weren't built for folks like us yeah. um, you know if you can almost imagine you know if a workplace was built for three foot tall people. Right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. <laughs> the entire time, you know, generations after generation, the workplaces, everything's three feet tall. Yeah. And now you have 
folks who are 10 feet tall who are starting to enter the workplace, yeah. women, people yeah. of color. And now we have to, you know, we have to fit into these three foot doors. We have to sit on the furniture that's half our size. Yeah. And just the, I mean, you can, you can imagine like the physical distortion of trying to fit in to a place that was not built for you. Yeah. The furniture wasn't built for you. The doors weren't built for you. The food wasn't built for you. <laughs> the, the coffee cups are this small. And, you know, that's a really like wild, you know, uh, interpretation of that. But. And that's a really salient example. It's literally yeah. that's not that that's yeah, not that's what's right. happening. Right. But yeah. we, but things yeah. are happening. Like you know, the definition of professionalism. Yeah. Or someone telling you that you can't get that leadership role because you don't have executive presence, whatever that means. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it really comes back to how do we really dismantle the norms the culture and dismantle even the idea of culture fits yeah. you know, i like to use the word culture amplifier mm. uh, because if you're just going to perpetuate the same mm -hmm. you're going to get carbon copies you're going to get the same um and i wanted to talk about this this is really heavy on my mind because i've started to read some research that's saying um women and people of color in particular are the majority of them are the ones who are saying, I don't want to come back to the office. Mm. <laughs> um, if yeah. you're looking at the populations, you know, we're starting to survey like, okay, who wants to come back to the office? Who wants to get back to that office culture? You're seeing women and people of color saying, nah, I, 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 yeah. this is, yeah. this has been a moment where I feel like I've belonged the most. Yeah. Um, office culture is built for white males and those are the ones who are wanting to go back interestingly enough because it was built for it's them. not very interesting actually it's very obvious i mean it's not actually an interesting and i think what's interesting is that is that we don't talk about it like you hear employers want people back the ceos want people back that's white men that's white men and that's and that has a lot to do with control it has a lot to do with having eyes on the work a lack of trust and uh and that's to me i think when you talk about um the ways in which uh, workplace culture uh, is is in many ways rooted in um, a sort of distrust in which um, people are not believed in terms of both what their needs are, what their abilities are, what their intentions are, what their integrity is. There's an assumption that one needs to be watched, one needs to be assessed constantly, one needs to be monitored. Where does that all come from? You know, like, and I think so when I, when people are, when, when we have these conversations about like culture and what sort of white supremacy culture is, I try to go back and think about, let's link it up to the deeper history around sort of our religious traditions as well. Let's link it up to some of the prevailing sort of ideologies that have seeped into, that have seeped, that have come to us through our prevailing religious ideologies. And some of that gives us a sort of sense of the why we have organizational cultures that operate in the ways they operate. And sort of what I mean by that is there is this such thing as the sort of Protestant work ethic. You know, the Protestant work ethic has been, it was a, you know, and this is something that is, you know, I'm not nearly the first person who's identified this as a feature that is sort of prevails inside of um, workplace culture. But that ethic is really, it values a sort of presentation of work, a, a sort of fastidiousness that is, that, is a, that, is a, that is a signal that one is engaged, a signal that one is sort of 
of the team and really about the thing and da, 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 da. So if I present in other ways or if my background and traditions call for different ways of being, that can be perceived as I'm not part of the team. I'm not really giving my all. I'm not really bought in and whatever else have you. But if, if it is the case that for me, work is actually a place that I go to do the work that I do and not a place that I go looking for friendship necessarily or going to look for culture necessarily or go to look for X, Y, and Z, it could be perceived that I'm not that's not me. But if historically I have found that in other places and I have found that that is, but you know, my, my, you know, my way of being, my sort of cultural taste or whatever else have you are not prevailing in this environment, I find it elsewhere. And so you're asking me to adjust to what is your way, but you are naming it as the way and you're naming it as a way that is linked to performance too and performance outcomes. And I think that's usually the way it gets rationalized, right? The rationalization for why we want people back to work is that we believe we're gonna get better performance outcomes. But, but people are saying, actually, that's not necessarily true. If we look at what we're doing, we're producing it more than we've ever produced. We're, we're doing, so what are you really saying here? What you're really saying here is that you're missing something that you have valued incredibly and, and that has a lot to do with your positionality as the person in charge. That has a lot to do with being in an environment where a lot of the energy is focused on and directed towards you. And that not having that at your disposal, not having that tangibly and accessible in a way for, I, I worked in an organization, I remember years ago, I remember, and I, I remember a decade ago I was working in an organization that started pushing for, um, uh, for our team to be able to work from home. Cause I was like, I come into an office and go sit into a corner. No one calls me. No one needs me for, why am I here? I don't understand it. I am only doing work on a computer. No one asks me, my phone doesn't ring. You don't know, what do I need to be here? And it came to realize that I had to walk by the CEO's office every time I came in and everybody did, right? And I realized, oh, this is about them. This is about their feeling about the engine of the workplace and is it about their sense of, and I get that because if you have a distrust, if you don't believe that people are committed to the work and that they're going to put value and integrity in their work, you know, then you do feel like they need to have some kind of system set up to observe, monitor, and, and sort of, and, 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 and ensure that they are executing at a certain level. Now I do know that, and I do want to name, I think there's a lot of value for people coming together. As a facilitator, I have I value being in, in space with people. What I advocate for of is, and what I talk more about is, organizations moving to towards what I call almost like a um, a circuit training model, or like a or like a I used to call it the hit training model, like a high intensity interval training model. Right? It's the hit model. You come together for sprints, and that sprint might be for four days. We're going to come together, and we're going to come together with clear agendas and clear objectives, and then we're going to go away again. And I think that there's a that I would I would like to see and advocate for more organizations thinking about these sprints because then you get people who are still able to do some of the community building, FaceTime interaction, but you cut away from what the people have been saying for years has been killing them, which is useless meetings. Right? If you listen, if you think about management culture in our society, management culture in our society forces people who want to want to be promoted and want to progress in their careers to push into management roles that often push them away from the work that they were really good at doing and pushes them further towards having to be in a role where they're monitoring people that they're all, and that's their job. And therefore calling people to meetings, calling that, and that is they start to detest that. And who wants to go back to that? 
right? Nobody wants to, it's not like a thing people want to go back to doing. It's not a great feeling you have about yourself, but that's typically the way in which we rise. You have to get up and go through. Anyway, um, that's well, the- I love, I love your, your um, perspective on perception and the, the norms that I think have originated somewhere. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of like, um, oh gosh, how do I, how do I describe it? It's, it's, it's almost just um, not even based on logic anymore. Right? It's just a perception that has built over time that just is. And back to your point earlier, I think that is just going back to bringing this full circle. That is what's wrong with society right now yeah. is yeah. things have just been the way they've been. No one's questioned them. No one has questions the question, the exclusivity or the nature is to which it is excluding certain groups. And, um, you know, I almost, I even think about, um, you know, um, neurodiversity and Mm. um, preferences, Mm -hmm. you know, when it comes to introverts versus extroverts, you know, how they process information. It, the workplace was created for extroverts. (laughs) Uh, I believe that a hundred percent. And I I mean, I would just, I'd be curious to know from your perspective, what do you see as so keeping that data that I just yeah. mentioned in mind about there's certain groups who are saying, you know what, I'm I feel like I most belong working from home and having yeah. these more purposeful hit type of uh, interactions yeah. that make sense, yeah. that add value to my work and to my purpose. Yeah. What what's your like if you had an, uh, one of those eight balls, what do they call it? Crystal balls. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh-huh. How do you think this current state of uh, i'll call it an awakening um you know they call it the great resignation yeah. the great awakening yeah. there's a million different words for it right now but what do you predict will happen to, that's I mean, putting on the spot i know right <laughs> like you know let's just just say up front and provide this made this caveat that i you know that if you were to ask me two years ago you know what this would look like in the world there's no way i would know and there's no way any of us would know so that obviously that I mean, the, the game of the, the, the efforts to predict anything are all they are a fool's errand. That said, I like the question, so I'm going to try to answer it to some extent. I think that, like, um, um, what I would like to see is that gets what gets layered into this conversation about the work from home conversation is climate. And you know, if folks don't remember, don't remember, but earlier this summer there was a, a climate report that was released to much alarm, and of course, has since faded away. It was shortly before Hurricane Ida, that basically said that we are on a path of no return, you know, unless we make some immediate changes to the way in which we are operating as a society. And of course, Americans and this society in particular is a, has a huge footprint when it comes to, you know, our environmental and climate impact. When I see employers say it's that they want to get people back to work, I want to, I want people to complicate that thinking and recognize that that means getting people into cars making them drive. That means putting more, more noxious fumes into the environment. That means more consumption of the various sort of, um, these sort of these, uh, more consumption, more reckless consumption, um, more needless consumption, more people flying on planes. Like that is a zero sum game. Like we're not, that has got to be part of our conversation now. Like part of the work I really want to even be doing moving forward is particularly as a father of young children is, is intersect more of my work in social justice with environmental and climate justice. I feel like, unfortunately, that, that work has been 
that seemed almost off limits for me. It feels like that's work that's happening over there. And these, they're, again, there are white people doing that work over in the climate justice space. And that doesn't really intersect with the social justice space. They need to be in conversation together. And I really want to pull them together. So for me, what I am, what I am registering is a deep need for us to really think about this, this sort of new opportunity that has availed itself to us as an opportunity to also um, scale back our impact on the environment, to really think about sustainability and live more sustainability, to use our homes, to transform our homes into more sustainable environments, to, to sort of like recognize that what we have been doing, pushing all these folks into these sort of these vehicles to push to these offices and this rush out, like it is not just that it is draining people's life but it is also draining the life of our, our of our precious earth and our mother nature. So I feel like that's a comp that's one thing I would like to see as a caveat. What I think is going to happen is the companies that persist and survive and that will become successful are going to be the ones that get that message. That's where the talent is going to go. And I think that that is just what we need to be clear about. Like, and I think that it's not just generally talent more broadly. I think especially if folks want to have BIPOC talent, that they need to be aware that Folks like myself, like yourself, all of, we know our value now. We may not have known it a couple of years ago, but we know our value now. We might have questioned it, but now we're very clear. And we're clear that we're needed and we bring a lot to the table. And so we're not going to just take anything. And we're not going to just jump because you said, not going to say how high because you said jump. The, the, that arrangement is not the arrangement anymore. That isn't to say that we don't want to work in partnership with and collaborate with, but it just means the terms of the arrangement are different now. And people have to know that as leaders, you don't just to go in to close, go close the door and make a decision that's going to have an impact on everybody. And I'm just going to say, cool, that doesn't work anymore. People will walk away. People will be up in arms. They will put you on blast on social media and they will be right to do so. Right. Because people should have a voice. They should have a role in things and choices that are gonna have an impact on their lives. There's nothing wrong with opening up the space for decisions to be open for others to participate in, especially people who might have a better line of sight on the ripple effects of those decisions. There's nothing wrong with being more transparent. There's nothing wrong. And as a matter of fact, we see with even the way, way companies are gonna be measured on, on, the, on the stock market as well. I think we're gonna to start to see more stakeholder more, more of a push towards a stake, a valuation of companies based on their ability to engage and impact their communities, not just their, their immediate stakeholders, but their broader set of stakeholders. That means the cities that they live in, the operate in, all the variety of people, stakeholders. I think those companies are going to be value-driven companies that people are going to want to invest more in, especially younger folks who are making conscious decisions, all of which is to say that that old way was not working for us anymore. We needed something to push us out of it, and it was this pandemic. And unfortunately, it has cost many, many lives and will cost many, many more. And we should recognize that the opportunity that has opened up for us to move forward as a species, as a, as a humanity, as a collective, is unprecedented, and we must take advantage of it. I think the intelligent companies, which we're seeing, the smart, the big companies, they're all doing it. And every day you see another company, undefinite work from because they recognize it's just not worth the fight. It's just not worth it, you know? So that's who's gonna survive. And who will not is gonna be people who won't let go of a way of, a way of working that, they, that, that, is, that is really ultimately about their needs 
and about their their anxieties, their inability to trust, their inability to believe, their inability to respect people's autonomy and need for autonomy and recognize that we all are seeking self-actualization. And so why would you not set up the conditions for people to self-actualize as much as possible and really reduce and understand that they are trying to serve and work and work in partnership with you? Not It's not a threat. It does mean, I think, I will say this, I do think we're going to see um, a lot of the sort of middle management bureaucracy that has been built up around the companies and cultures become less and less, less and less relevant. Because a lot of that was a key component and feature of sort of the, the sort of in, in-person workplaces and there's a way for the pyramid to operate for that person at the top to be able to flow in from the cascade information and, a, and also hold authority and accountability. I think that's a lot of the sort of, there is a lot of superfluity inside the, in those middle spaces, unfortunately. A lot of those jobs and people who hold them know that. Like I, they ask themselves, what am I doing? What value am I adding? So I think there's gonna be new opportunities for, 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 for people to find and express their true value and their, stu- their true purpose. You know, um, but we do hope the last thing I'll say is that is also going to be determined, dependent upon and I live in Washington, D.C., what also happens down the block from where I am right now in Washington around our social safety nets and the extent to which we're going to be, you know, ready and willing and able to make sure that there are safety nets in place that are going to support people to be able to make the kind support people and companies to make the kinds of necessary transitions that we need to make. And right now, that to me is the most scary. That that's the most frightening thing. What 2022 and 2023 and 2024 have in store, I am uncertain about because I do know that these culture wars that we've been living through, maybe this past year has been a bit of a lull. It's about to get crazy again in the next two years because we already know Donald Trump's coming back. He's going to be back out there and he's got a lot of people who support him. And a lot of those people, unfortunately, are tied to an old way of doing things in the world, an old identity that of America. And they're very, very threatened by and fearful of this new world that we're building and that we want them to be part of as well but they're very threatened by it so i think we are up we have this there's a there is a real struggle that we're going to be in over the next few years we need to brace ourselves for protect your energy do your work whatever you need to do because we're about to get into it these next few years yeah dax i think um you know this this is and i I love that you balanced uh kind of some of your last comments with reality because it's true i think us in this room you and i together are you know um on the path to a movement uh, a revolution um a path of changing paradigms changing tradition and there is there is this other group that is is down the opposite path 70 and, million of them yes yes and um First of all, I mean, I, I could talk to you all day. I feel like we need a whole nother podcast episode on that topic alone. Yeah. Part two, but I did want to close and just thank you. You are a gift to the world. Uh, mm. Your work is phenomenal. Uh, and I am just so excited to be on this, this path with you and in, in this movement with you. So thank you so much for joining uh, we will make sure to include um, links to your, your new book, where people can find you and join the movement and um, be a part of some of the work you're doing. So thank you so much, Dax. And, and do not let me, do not think you're going to let this project, this podcast end without me saying um, thank you for the work that you do. Like you, you, your level of, you, you, your bar is so high and I just need you to know that and you need to hear that. 
um, the work you're putting out in the world, the work you do in the world, the light that you bring into the world, um, the space that you create for people like me to be a part of your world. All of that, I think, is um, indicative of your spirit, your character, and I know the quality of the work that you're doing in the world. So you are a gift, and it is a pleasure of mine to know you now, to work with you now, to call you a friend. And I look forward to our paths continuing to weave and cross. And I wanted to also lastly just give you like all the, all the, all the, all the best sort of like positive energy in the world as you finish that book. Just finish that thing, make it great, get it out there so I can have you on my show next year talking about your book. That's what we. That's that's the kind of thing we're trying to do here. So we have reciprocity at all times. Reciprocity. Absolutely. You you uh, just that touched my heart. So thank you so much. And I am excited for us to. There's there's so much synergy between our work. We're going to do some great work together. That's right. That's right. All right, y'all. Be well. Have a great day. <laughs>